You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're just a few days away from having a World Series matchup to look forward to. It's, uh, it's getting lit. Postseason's getting lit. Is that right? Yeah, yes, right. That, that is the correct. Can it be lit. getting lit, or does it have to already be lit? Because I think is it's lit. lit. Oh, okay. It is lit. So yeah. it all it's already lit. It's lit. Yeah. I'm sure the kids have a version for like in the process of being lit, but I don't know what it is. So <laughs> you just declare it lit, and then you move on. We're we're the nerdiest nerds who ever. <laughs> nerded out in nerd town hey welcome in everybody episode number 81 of the show before the show podcast i'm tyler Vaughn. he's sam dykstra milb.com your home for all of the uh the best and brightest in minor league baseball and uh also the people who bring you this very podcast to which you are tuned in so hi welcome uh we're full on arizona fall league underway we're a full week into the afl got a lot coming up on the show today including a member of an Arizona Fall League roster. That is Mauricio Dubon, who is out in the AFL. The 12th-ranked prospect in the Boston Red Sox organization will join the show. Talk a little bit about uh, you know what it's like playing against some of the best talent in minor league baseball. He'll also talk about trying to be the first native Honduran and the second Honduran-born player to reach the major leagues. Mauricio Dubon this past season split his time between Salem in the Carolina League at Class A Advanced and Portland in the Eastern League at Double A. 62 games in each spot. And in total, the Red Sox prospect slash 323, 379, 461, which is pretty good um, so far in the Arizona Fall League with the surprise Saguaros. Uh, he's played in four games down in the AFL and a 611 OPS. We're excited to talk to Mauricio in a little bit. And with that, uh, we'll get into it. Three strikes for this week's edition of the show before the show starts things off in the Arizona Fall League. Sam, we're a weekend. Who's standing out to you? Yeah, so the the first guy I want to point out um, makes a lot of sense because he was actually named Arizona Fall League Player of the Week for the first week of the season, and that is Astros prospect Ramon Laureano. Uh, Laureano coming into this Fall League season was kind of a breakout star this year in 2016. Uh, a guy who hit 319, 428, 528 at Class A Advanced Lancaster and Double A Corpus Christi. Uh, now, I, I'm sure at home people are sitting back and thinking, you know, well, of course, he played at Lancaster. I'm sure his numbers were a little bit inflated there. But, you know, and they were. He had a 945 OPS there, 10 homers uh, and 80 games for the Jethawks. Uh, but actually, in just over a month at Corpus Christi, this was a guy who had a 981 OPS, managed five homers, 10 steals, and 36 games in the Texas League. Uh, so he had a, a little bit of a pedigree coming into this year, into this fall league campaign, and he just kept it trucking. I mean, this guy, as, as we're recording this on Wednesday, uh, he is eight for eighteen, so that's a four forty four average, two triples, two doubles, three RBIs, eight runs scored, and three steals in five games with the Glendale Desert Dogs. Uh, you know, we talk so much in these last two years of all the Astros prospects they're kind of turning out. This is a guy who wasn't really on anybody's radar coming into the year. He was a 16th round pick in 2014 out of Northeastern Oklahoma A&M. Uh, he's only 22 years old this year, but w this was his second full season. Uh, has has a good uh, run tool. Has a little bit of of a hitting ability. Uh, he had a, he had 265 at Quad Cities in two, 2015, but this year just everything popped, and that's in, in uh, that's extending into the fall league season. 
which is really intriguing. Uh, you know, it's a five-game sample right now. Uh, when he was named Player of the Week, it was a four-game sample. So, you know, what does that mean? Not much right now. But, you know, it, it's it makes you raise an eyebrow when you see a guy who, you know, surprised you during the regular season and continues to do so against, you know, quality pitching in the AFL. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about what type of level do we consider the AFL. It's kind of double-A, maybe halfway between double-A, triple-A. Uh, to, so, so to see a guy like Loriano uh, do really well there, you know, after just a little over a month at double-A, that's, that's quite exciting, I would say, for Astros fans and Astros prospects, or people following Astros prospects. Uh, another name I'll throw out there, he's a guy we've talked about a lot in the past uh, is Bradley Zimmer for kind of a different reason. He, he won the hitting challenge, which is, you know, cool. I guess it's like winning the home run derby. Uh, you know, I would, I always love seeing Yoannis Suspedes in the home run derby. That doesn't mean I think he's the best hitter in major league baseball, but you know, just put that off to the side. Zimmer won the hitting challenge. So he got off to a nice start there. Uh, but what Zimmer has done a really good job of so far in the AFL is taking his walks uh, through four games. He's got six walks, and I think 18 played appearances. So he's walking about a third of the time every time he gets up to bat. He also has five strikeouts, so he's letting, you know, he's getting into some deep counts, which has always been kind of his deal. But this year, between Akron and Columbus, you know, he just wasn't making that much contact or he was getting into those late counts and striking out. He had 171 strikeouts this year and 468 at-bats. That's not been the case so far in the AFL, and because he's getting on base at a much better clip with a 556 OBP. Uh, he's also stealing bases like we know he can do with five steals in four games for the Mesa Solar Sox. So we'll have to see if that continues. You know, it, is that strikeout rate going to jump again as, as pitchers begin to figure him out and see a little bit more of him in the AFL? Or, you know, is he continue gonna, or going to continue to work these deep counts to his favor and work the walks? Uh, that'll be intriguing. And we'll have to see if he actually plays into any power yet. He has four hits, two of which have gone for doubles. Uh, but we know he has a little bit more pop with that with 15 homers this year and 16 homers in 2015. Uh, just to throw out a, a pitcher, uh, James Caprillion. Yeah. In the Yankee system, you Definitely. know, coming off a year that was supposed to be a big year for him. First full season coming out of UCLA uh, went, underwent you know, an elbow problem kind of got shut down very early, didn't get to see much of him at all. But before that, there were stories that he had been hitting the high 90s with his fastball, uh, you know, sits out the rest of the year, comes back to the AFL, looking healthy, looking good, not quite hitting those 98s, 99s he was with Tampa in the Florida State League, but still hitting, you know, mid-90s, according to some reports. Uh, he's again striking out nine over six innings, only given up one earned run so far between two starts. Um, so, you know, he's picked up right where he left off even after the injury. And that's a reason for optimism. If you're a Yankees fan, uh, you know, after there was so much reason for optimism in that farm system during the year, uh, a strong fall league campaign, or at least a strong start to a fall league campaign is yet another reason for optimism for those Yankees fans. So those are three I just wanted to touch on. There's so many more we could get to 
Tyler, I'm sure you're going to kind of pick up the mantle with some other guys too. Yeah, well, one of the guys who's really stood out to me so far is Nick Gordon in the uh, the Minnesota Twin system, the second-ranked prospect in the Twins organization so far through his first handful of games with surprise. And again, all of this really applies so far as the the dreaded triple S small sample size. But four games with the surprise Saguaros, he's eight for 16 with a double. He scored four runs. This is the thing that I like about Nick Gordon, though. He's drawn three walks. He's only struck out twice. Um, so that's pretty impressive, especially when you look back at what he's done in those categories categories in his career I mean he's been young at every stop so far through his career really young in the Midwest League in 2015 really young in the Florida State League this year he doesn't even turn 21 until October 24th but this year in the Florida State League he struck out 87 times walked 23 times those are numbers you can handle but then when you see a guy go toward advanced competition like you see in the AFL and like I said really early it's only been a handful of games but he's got more walks and strikeouts if that even stays in a little bit of relationship to what it is right now that's pretty impressive Nick Gordon uh the young brother of D Gordon of course for those who may not remember he was the first position player taken out of high school back in 2014 fifth overall pick in that draft he's just been good at every level where he's gone everywhere the twins have challenged him so far he's been really really good at Elizabethton in his first year Cedar Rapids in 2015 and then Fort Myers this year uh in the Florida State League so one of those guys who uh not uh, an absurd ceiling. I mean, not the type of the ceiling that you saw from Miguel Sano or Byron Buxton and some of these other talents that have gone through the Minnesota organization, but a high ceiling and a guy the Twins know can be a very, very good major leaguer. Um, so uh, a shortstop definitely to keep an eye on. And another guy, and this isn't just to plug, although it is in, I guess, a way to plug my first AFL notebook, uh, but Jared Miller, who is a, uh, a reliever in the D-backs organization, so far is uh, one off the uh, AFL lead for strikeouts. And Jared Miller's a reliever. Everybody else in that category leading in that category with nine strikeouts as a starting pitcher. Jared Miller threw his first uh, three and two-thirds in the AFL, has struck out eight all out of the bullpen, hasn't given up a run, he's only allowed two hits. I was really impressed with him talking with him. He's a Vanderbilt product and a guy who I think feels like he has found his role. Um, he's a reliever. He had started earlier on in his career. Now it looks like the D-backs are content to see him progress toward the major leagues as a reliever. This year he made 45 appearances at four different levels. He started off with Kane County in the Midwest League. Then he was in Visalia in the California League. Then he was in Mobile in the Southern League. And he was in Reno and actually went back to Mobile from AAA. Uh, but really really quality really effective stuff from him season long in 45 appearances a 2.64 era and if you take out what he did in triple a where he allowed four runs over six innings that era drops a ton so one of those guys quick riser could be in the big leagues you know as early as next season uh very conceivably at this stage but he's been really impressive so far uh in the afl's early going as well small sample sizes but it's fun through the first week of uh, of play yeah for sure i mean this is what we're looking for is just who can produce against this quality competition, um, who's going to hit the ground running. And these are some of the guys. I mean, we could go on about some of the other lists. Um, you know, I think, you know, Mankata has, has looked exactly how we expected him to. Um, you know, Tyler O'Neill has already has three home runs in five games. Uh, Gleber Torres has two homers in four games. So, you know, no matter where you look, I think, there hasn't been any real big surprises yet, but that could change as we get the sample a little lo larger. Strike two this week. Organization all-star stories continue to drop on MILB.com. It's another cool thing. It's like, uh, what, what did I say earlier? 
What was the what was the other cool kid? Lit. I said lit. Dro- drop is from the eighties. That well, is not a new cool lit. hip thing. <laughs> Dropping has happened since Drops there were the albums, cool. and albums have been out forever. Now, I remember when Drake came out with that mixtape. If you're reading this, it's too late, and everybody's like, "Oh, Drake dropped a new one." Drop. That, yeah, but that they're just that using that like in the normal way. That's not like, <laughs> oh, this new Drake album is lit. That's a thing. <laughs> also, I think that was that was like four years ago. <laughs> Okay. No, that was definitely in the last year. We're good. Okay, good. Um, strike two this week, Sam. Organization All-Stars continuing the Cleveland Indians and the Colorado Rockies up this week. I wrote the Rockies, so let's talk about the Indians with you first. Um, that's a system that had a lot of guys kind of come out of nowhere this year. I mean, obviously, Francisco Mejia really stands out. Uh, they, you know, make some deals. Clint Frazier no longer a part of the organization, but they do keep Bradley Zimmer. There's some intriguing elements in that Indian system. Yeah. Uh, shout out to Michael Avalon for writing this story. Um, you know, he, he did a pretty bang up job, I would say, uh, covering the entire Indian system here. Talk to director of player development, Carter Hawkins. So if you get the chance, read his story. It's going to be much more in depth than anything I can provide for you here in about five minutes. But, uh, yeah, I think, you know, when you, you talk about the Indian system in 2016, first you have to talk about Mejia, uh, just because that 50 game hitting streak is something, you know, the likes of which we have not seen in a very long time. Uh, he's up for a couple Milby categories this year so don't be afraid to check him out there as well uh but you know a a guy who we thought coming into the year was going to be a really really good defensive catcher um but a light hitting one he hit 243 in lake county last year uh comes back to lake county to start this year hits 347 starts the hitting streak then moves up to class a advanced lynchburg continues the hitting streak finishes the year there hitting 333 so between the two spots he hit 342 with an 896 ops uh still a really good you know defensive catcher he threw out 30 uh would-be base stealers out of 69 attempted steals uh so that's really really strong he's got a good arm He, he can frame it pretty well i think anytime you're talking about the indian system you do have to start with mejia uh a couple guys i kind of want to point out uh just because they Stuck out to me over the past couple of years. Sean Morimondo, uh, he was Mike's pick for left-handed starter. This was a guy who had 16 games or 16 starts in Akron, 11 starts in Columbus. Got two in Cleveland. Didn't quite stick there. Um, but this is a guy now three years running has thrown over 150 innings in the minor leagues. You know he's pretty dur- durable. Even in 2013, he threw 135 innings. It seems like everywhere he goes, you know exactly what you're going to get, which is an ERA in the low threes. Uh, Not a lot of strikeouts, but a a fairly decent whip. Uh, He's got, I think, four different pitches, all of which grade out to, you know, slightly above average to slightly below average. And when you have that mix, you're certainly going to do well enough in the minor leagues to, you know, to do fairly well, to be a, a number three pitcher for any staff you're on. Um, you know, I think that's probably his ceiling in the majors. And I'm talking about like absolute ceiling. You know, it, I'm not talking about that's a realistic ceiling. I, I think the Indians would love to see him become a number three starter. Uh, but he's a guy who could have some value as a number four, or number five, kind of a swing man maybe next year, kind of playing the role that Mike Clevenger did this year in the Indian system of a guy just getting called up, you know, whenever they needed him. Uh, but, you know, the, the quote Hawkins gave about Murmondo, his stuff is major league across the board. It's just a matter of him refining things and becoming more consistent. We don't have many guys who work as hard as Sean, and we're excited where he's headed as we head into 2017. 
so they obviously think he's a guy on the upswing. Uh, we'll see if that continues. But, you know, if one thing's for sure, he's definitely going to eat innings. Uh, he's going to give you, you know, quality start in and out. And can he take that to the next level? We'll have to see there. Uh, and Eric Gonzalez was another guy I kind of want to point out just because he's a guy. He was our pick at shortstop for the Indian system. You know, the Indians are certainly one of those teams where if there's a position on lock, it's shortstop at the major league level with Francisco Lindor. I I don't think anybody's going to knock him off that spot. Uh, I don't think I know nobody's going to knock him off that spot. But Gonzalez this year, you know, playing at AAA Columbus, hit 296, had 11 homers, 31 doubles, 12 steals, and a 779 OPS. So they were trying to figure out exactly what to do with him. They gave him some time in the majors with Cleveland. Uh, he played third base, second base, you know, right field, a little bit of shortstop. They just played him all over the place, trying to figure out where he's going to stick. I think they were really pleased with what he was able to do. Hawkins says here he has a strong ability to play multiple positions at a high level. That versatility gives us flexibilities. We think about composing our major league roster for depth. His experience in winter ball has helped him gain confidence to compete at the upper levels. He's got a bright future ahead of him and is another guy you'll look up and see an impact the way Jose Ramirez did this year for us. Ramirez being the starting third baseman during the Indians run through the ALC, ALCS this year. Um, so, you know, they just have another one of these guys who might be able to play shortstop in any other system because of Lindor. You know, they're going to move him around a bit. We'll have to see what how that carries into 2017, especially starting at spring training. Uh, but yeah, a lot of intriguing guys here. We talked about Zimmer before. Uh, I think he still might be the really, you know, the best prospect in that system. Uh, Bobby Bradley, another guy who had a good year. I don't think he was named as the first baseman on this team, which just goes to tell you how deep it was. Tristan McKenzie didn't quite make the cut at right-handed pitcher. I think he'll be really good in 2017. So even in the list on that you see on this org all-stars, just know there's plenty more to come from an Indian system that, you know, is certainly building to uh, even better days than what we're seeing right now from them. And I know you had the Rockies. Yeah. Tyler, which I know rare for me. Yeah. Which is rare for me to be the, the one in trust. We're talking about Oregon All-Stars, and one of them is yours. So uh, I'll hand it off to you for them. Yeah, well, uh, you know, as I kind of said in the lead to this story, 2016 was really the it feels like the tip of the spear um, in Denver for all of this talent that has been on the way. And I know for Rockies fans, it feels like it's been on the way and been promised for a very, very long time. But this year, you see Trevor Story, and you see what he did when he was healthy. You see John Gray, uh, especially the way he surged to the finish line for the Rockies. David Dahl, all these guys who really made some pretty significant an impact at the major league level and then you start to realize there's a lot more of that in the upper minors that's on the way that's what stood out to me most about um, what happened in this rocky system this year is eight guys who i named this organization all-stars team saw part of their season at least at triple a albuquerque that's an encouraging sign for the rockies because it means you're not trying to build a lot of of uh, suspense around your system with prospects that are only at the lower levels when you have guys that are at double a hartford that are at triple a albuquerque and then all of a sudden they're breaking through that's a very encouraging sign 
especially because of the fact that the Rockies have a lot of talent below that, too. They had a lot of talent in Asheville this year, a lot of talent at rookie-level Grand Junction. Um, so there are very encouraging things in that system. But I think what stands out the most for the Rockies is the way the pitching continues to develop because that's always the knock. You can't do it at Coors. Coors ruins everybody, blah, blah, blah. Well, it didn't happen to John Gray this year. Certainly didn't happen to Tyler Anderson, who's another former first-round pick and blew up this season. Uh, and we saw the the major league debuts of Jeff Hoffman and Herman Marquez. And Marquez is where I'll start it. He was a right-handed starter that I named on this roster. He was acquired in the trade that sent Corey Dickerson to Tampa Bay. Um, and also uh, Rockies third base prospect, Kevin Padlow went to Tampa Bay in that deal. Rockies acquired major league reliever, Jake McGee, but Marquez was really the centerpiece of that from the Rockies standpoint. And he goes out this year, strikes out 155 and 160 six and two thirds innings between Hartford and Albuquerque and the way Rocky senior director of player development, Zach Wilson and double a manager, Darren Everson talk about him is very impressive because of his maturity. I think that's what stands out the most is you can see the stuff and that's obviously great. And this is what Zach Wilson said before you get a guy into the organization, you can evaluate what type of person he is. You can evaluate the type of stuff that he has, but you don't really know the full package until you get him in. And that's what blew everybody away about Herman Marquez was just how professional just how mature he is what a clubhouse leader he was and he did that going through especially a, a tough stretch in Hartford where you don't have a home ballpark and we'll talk about that situation actually coming up in a little bit with Benjamin Hill but at 21 years old he was kind of one of the guys that really served as some of the glue on that Hartford team to keep everybody on the same page and that was a team that turned into a successful year despite the fact they played 142 games strictly on the road Kyle Freeland was another one of those guys he's a left-handed starter on this Oregon All-Stars team Denver native Evansville university product drafted with the, the six overall selection back in 2014. Was that already three years ago for or three drafts ago for Kyle Freeland? It was uh, 2014, man. That makes me feel <laughs> things go too fast. The passage of time. Everything goes too fast. I don't get it. Um, but Freeland this year, 14 starts for Hartford, 12 for Albuquerque, a 3.89 ERA and three scoreless outings in his final four starts in AAA this season, which was really impressive, and stayed healthy from the time he got started through the end of the season. That's always been the question mark around Kyle Freeland, but he stayed healthy. That's what really stands out to me is the Rockies continue – developing the guys that they cannot miss on. I mean, that's where the Rockies have fallen so short in years past is they've had one, two highly touted pitching prospects. And those guys end up falling apart. The Rockies have a handful or more of guys with as good of ceilings as you regularly see come through that organization. And they've all continued to take strides toward hitting those ceilings. That really impresses me on the position player side. The guy who really stood out to me all season was Brian Mundell, who's the first baseman for the Asheville Tourists. This year, and yes, very hitter-friendly ballpark for Asheville, but this year, Brian Mundell set a minor league record, not a South Atlantic League record, a minor league record with 59 doubles, and he batted 313, 383, 505, 14 homers, 83 RBIs. He was the Sally League MVP. Um, but again, another guy at the Rockies love his leadership ability in addition to what he's able to do on the field. Really impressive. Um, and then the there's Brendan Rogers, who was his teammate, third overall selection in 2015, another Asheville guy this year. And again, like Kyle Freeland, I think the Rockies really wanted to see the ability to stay healthy from Brendan Rogers. I remember him saying that to me in spring training. When we had a conversation uh, about what he expected out of 2016. He said, I just want to, I want to get out of the gate healthy. I want to stay healthy throughout the season. And he did it a mid season, all-star end of season, all-star in the South Atlantic league, batted 281, 342, 480. He's the real deal. And the thing that was also interesting about that from Rogers perspective, the Rockies tried 
tried him at second base also. There's a good deal more about the system and a lengthy quote from Zach Wilson about that on the Milb Perspective blog, which is MILB Prospective, like prospect, perspective.mlblogs.com. You can check that out. There's a lot more over there about Brendan Rodgers, why he got some time at second base and how he handled that transition. Uh, but that was really impressive. David Dahl, org all-star for the fourth time. Remel Tapia, org all-star for the fourth time. Uh, kind of the names that you expect to see on the list for the Rockies. And then there's one really cool story. Steven Cardulo, who the Rockies signed out of independent ball ahead of spring training this year. He had never played above rookie ball in affiliated baseball. They throw him into AAA. He's outstanding with AAA, makes his major league debut, hits a home run on his major league debut. Then in a makeup game later that day, which was his birthday, by the way, hits a grand slam. But a really cool story. One of those guys just kind of comes out of nowhere. A lot more about him on the blog as well. Um, but that is uh, an organization that has had a really talented pipeline for a long time. And those guys are really starting to make their presence known that this is uh, it's certainly going to be something that comes to fruition for Colorado. It's not like these guys are hitting double A and hitting triple A and all of a sudden they're disappearing. Because on this Org All-Stars team, I actually didn't have a single player from Class A Advanced uh, Modesto nor from Class A short season Boise. So there's a ton of talent at Asheville, which will be in Class A advance next year. The Rockies changed their affiliation to Lancaster. There's a, a discussion about Lancaster on the blog as well because that's an interesting question. But double-A Hartford, AAA Albuquerque, that's where it's at. And also rookie-level Grand Junction, a guy like Riley Pint goes through there. Colton Welker goes through there with a really successful season, the third baseman. So a ton of talent in that system. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I think we, I think you mentioned it, but – um, you know, starting to see it turn into major league talent between John Gray, David Dahl. Uh, I think it's, uh, you know, as rough of a season as it was to go through this. I know, you know, Walt Weiss is gone and the man, you know, you got to look for new leadership at the top. Um, you know, it, that extra talent is coming. And I think that's a, quite a reason for optimism if you live in Colorado. Certainly a much more attractive job than it would have been this time, uh, you know, when Walt Weiss took over and there really wasn't that much in the system compared to what there is now. So uh, that was one of the things I said to Zach Wilson was, well, hopefully things start to calm down for you soon. And he said, yeah, we still need a manager, though. <laughs> I guess that's, uh, that's one, small of those, detail. one of those things you got to get worked out. Strike three, tool shed this week. Sam talks about speed. And speed is one of my favorite topics to talk about in baseball because speed in baseball and speed in every other sport are completely different. But uh, Victor Robles gets a lot of love, the Washington Nationals prospect uh, in this column. But this is a really interesting one. I like the, the speed conversation. Yeah, so I have to you know admit from the off here, uh, I use speed score for this, which is something that was developed by Bill James in the 1980s, uh, you know, 30 years ago. Yeah, we like to think of Bill James. You think of Moneyball. You think, you know, his role with the Red Sox right now, uh, a guy who likes to play with the numbers of baseball and try to better understand baseball through that, uh, through those numbers. Uh, and I and I think there's something behind speed score in telling us, you know, who not necessarily who's the fastest on the field, but who best use their speed on the field, particularly on the base paths. You know, we we have other stats like UZR, stuff like that, defensive run saved. Um, for you know, defense, speed score is more just for the base paths. So you're looking at you know run score, you're looking at triples, you're looking at stolen base percentage, how often they're trying to steal a base. So you know if a guy's two for two in stolen bases, that doesn't get you any extra credit. Um, so you know the, uh, putting all those numbers together, I, I won't go through the whole explanation process here. Uh, you can check it out on the site. It's under the our new tool shed stats. 
kind of vertical. Uh, and Victor Robles, as, as uh, Tyler mentioned, led top 100 prospects in speed score this year. He scored an 8.6. That's usually on a 0 to 10 scale. Uh, but 7 is usually considered excellent. He had 8.6. Second was Yohan Mankata. Third at, or second at 8.5 was Yohan Mankata. Third at 8.2 was Manuel Margot. Fourth was Jorge Mateo at 8.1. And he might be the fastest of all top 100 prospects. Uh, just didn't put it to as good use this year. And Mickey Moniak, fifth at 7.7 in a small sample in the Gulf Coast League. Uh, but for Robles, um, you know, this was a guy, I talked to his Potomac manager, Trip Keister, who said, listen, you know, we gave him the green light. We want him to run because uh, we, we want him to learn, you know, that was a good time to go. And we also want him to learn that that was definitely not a good time to go. Uh, and he was a guy who took advantage of that. You know, he stole 37 bags this year and 51 chances. And I think they're as happy with the fact that he got caught 40, 14 times. So now he knows those are not the times to try to steal uh, because he has plus plus speed and he can make that work. Um, you know, he also added eight triples, which gets factored into speed score pretty well. Uh, they think he's a guy whose speed can play, you know, at the top level. Uh, Keister threw out not a comp exactly on either of these levels, but he said, you know, I think the definition of a good base stealer is getting that bag when you, when the other team knows you're going to try to steal it. And he thinks uh, Victor Robles can turn into that type of player. He used the example of Dave Roberts in the 2004 ALCS. Everybody in the country, everybody in the world knew he was going to try to steal second. He did it anyways. Like Anthony Rizzo last night. Yeah, that too. The wheels of Anthony Very Rizzo. Very surprisingly. Uh, <laughs> so Anthony Rizzo, base stealer that you want to model yourself after. But, uh, yeah, you know, he thinks Robles can be that kind of way. We know the Nationals already have one of the best in the game in that in Trey Turner, who already occupies center field. Um, but if you're thinking about it, you know, Turner's natural position is shortstop. By the time maybe Robles is ready to come up, maybe by 2018, you know, you can imagine Turner moving back to short. Uh, Danny Espinosa will either be out of the organization or, you know, a, a bench player at that point, especially if he's hitting like he did this year. So they, they'll figure that kind of stuff out. But imagine a top of the lineup with Victor Robles plus plus speed, Trey Turner, top of the line speed. The Nationals have the potential to just give guys fits on the base paths for years to come. And, you know, Bryce Harper's pretty good to drive him in. He, he is pretty good. From what I've heard. He's really good at that. From what people have told me, people who watch baseball, pretty good. That'll do it for this week's edition of Three Strikes. Coming up from Arizona, the 12th-ranked prospect in the Boston Red Sox organization, Mauricio Dubon, joins the show to talk about his breakout 2016 start to the AFL campaign and more. Mauricio Dubon joins us next. And we head down to the Arizona Fall League for our second consecutive week as the AFL season is fully underway. And we are joined by the 12th-ranked prospect in the Boston Red Sox organization, Mauricio Dubon, the shortstop for the Surprise Saguaros. Mauricio, welcome, man. How's the AFL treating you so far? Thank you, thank you. I mean, it's going good. It's going good. Good group of guys. I mean, I'm excited about it, so it's pretty good. Mauricio's season this year, 124 games combined between Salem and Portland in the Red Sox system, slash 323, 379, 461, outstanding campaign. And then you get the news that you're headed to Arizona. Tell us about what that process was, you know, when you were informed you were going to go to the AFL and your reaction and, you know, just kind of what this means for you at this stage in your career because you're really at the perfect spot to be in that league. Uh, I mean, I remember I was I was hitting a little bit good in in Portland and everything. I mean, uh, I was hoping I was going to come here and everything. And 
one day they just pulled me to the office and just kind of like gave me the news and everything. I mean, I was really excited about it because, I mean, I see this uh, when I'm home in the office and the Arizona Fall again, MLB Network and everything. So I mean, that'll be good to go. I mean, get to play in front of people, get to play in front of scouts. So. Yeah, so um, we don't really talk to guys too much about this, but how much, you know, as minor leaguers, especially at those high A and double A levels, how much are you guys talking about potentially playing in the Arizona Fall League when that time of year rolls around? I mean, you, the, some of the other guys have, like, like, we have an idea who will and who will not, like, but sometimes, I mean, surprises and everything. I mean, like, I wanted to go and it caught me by surprise and everything, but, like, I mean, we, we kind of have an idea who, who will and who will not. I mean, we, we talk a lot, so. And one thing I wanted to touch on for this AFL uh, season with you, you know, you've been playing a lot of shortstop this year, uh, have some experience at second base, but the uh, one of the things you've done so far a couple of days ago, you got to play center field. Um, what was that experience like and what have the Red Sox done to talk to you about potentially moving to the outfield, at least adding that to your repertoire? Uh, I mean, it was fun. Like, not going to lie, it was fun going back in the outfield. I haven't played outfields in probably Little League. But, I mean, they talk just being more ver- uh, versatile and everything. Open more to the horse. I mean, just however I can get to the big league club, I mean, it'll help to help out and everything. So, I mean, I don't mind. It's fun. And, I mean, it's, it is what it is. I mean, anything to get me up there. So, Mauricio, you're on a, a team right now with the, the two uh, big league clubs that call surprise home, Kansas City and Texas, and then also with prospects from the Twins and the Pirates, in addition to, to fellow Red Sox prospects that are down there. What's that mix been like for you? I mean, you said great group of guys. I would imagine there are a lot of guys that you've played against um, that you were kind of anxious to, to get a chance to be in the same clubhouse with. I mean, who are some of the guys that you've gotten a chance to know a little bit from these other organizations and talk to about you know this whole experience of being down there and playing with and against some of the best in minor league baseball? I mean, yeah, like you say, I play against a couple of these guys and everything. I mean, some of the guys I heard about now that I'm in the same clubhouse. But, I mean, this this guy's a great group of guys. I mean, level-headed guys. All I mean, they're really good. They're really talented, too. I mean, it's it's an unreal team and everything. I mean, guys that I talk to a lot is St. Gordon. I mean, good guy, good player. I mean, something you can learn from him, too. We were actually just talking about Nick Gordon a little bit ago. He's one of the guys uh, on your roster that's gotten started pretty hot. And when you got assigned to the AFL um, and you know who you're going down there with in your organization, I would imagine you know who's going down there, you know, somebody like Nick Gordon, you know, is going to be on your team. Did you at all look up, you know, who's going to be on some of these other rosters and, and give yourself an idea of, you know, maybe what to expect or guys who you're really excited to square off against or, you know, maybe players on other teams who you've played against in the past? Did you have sort of an idea of other talent that was going to be down there? Uh, not really. I mean, I, I just look up my team, who it was, and everything. Most of it I play against or with. I mean, it was. I don't try to like pay attention to who I'm going to play against. Like, like I, baseball is the same everywhere. So they still got to throw the ball to the plate. They still got to make three outs. So just look up what, what type of guys I'm going to be around with. That's all I did. All right, Mauricio, we want to kind of pivot now to how you got your start in pro ball. Um, yeah. That, one of the reasons we brought you on here is you have kind of a cool story born in Honduras, uh, but you were drafted out of Sacramento, the Sacramento area in California, 26th round in 2013. Um, For those of our listeners who don't know, kind of tell the story of 
how you came, you know, to the United States from Honduras, I think it was as a teenager, uh, but what, what that was like and how are you able to go from, you know, a guy who just moved here to a, to a draft pick? I mean, I was, a uh, mission trip came down to Honduras in 2010 and everything. I mean, they brought baseball stuff, they brought gear and everything, and they saw me just playing and uh, practicing during the, we were playing in uh, our hometown fields and everything, and they they saw me playing and everything. They asked me, like, what would I, what would I thought if I come back here and just play summer ball with them? And I was like, yeah, why not? I mean, let's go. And then ended up playing good enough, and they asked me if I could stay there and just play high school baseball with my with a host family. That was like in one week period. That that happened in one week right there, and ended up. I mean, the family took me as one of their sons and everything. I mean, it's nowadays. I mean, that's my mom and my dad right there. And every year I go back to Sacramento, visit them for like two months, three months. So I mean, it's. It's unreal how, uh, from the kid that was in Honduras, now I'm here in the fall league and everything. It's just kind of like something surreal to think about it. I mean, always dream about playing professional baseball, and now that I'm playing professional baseball and having a little bit of success, I mean, it's, it's something that being blessed enough. And what was your family's reaction when you called them and just said, hey, I know I've been here a week, but they want me to stay? I mean, what was that conversation like? Oh, man, I remember I told my mom, I talked to my mom, I got to my house and then told my mom, mom, uh, there's a couple of people from the United States that want to take me over there and play baseball. And she was kind of like, what, really? <laughs> like, yes, yeah. And she, she, she was like, I'll talk to them, I'll talk to them, I'll bring your brother with me. So she came and talked to them and everything. And I thought my mom's not going to let me go. And actually, she was like, yeah, go ahead, go, leave, that's your chance right there, so take advantage of it when you first got over here i mean you get thrown into a, you know, a tough level of competition i mean playing high school ball directly coming over uh from a country like honduras which has you know a, a good baseball program latin america is such a difficult market for any country that isn't one of the big hitters down there dominican or obviously with the mexican national team and those types of teams it's going to be tough uh, to compete on a large scale but with the talent that's come out of there how did you find it compared to I me mean, when you get into high school ball over here what was that culture shift like for you as a ball player where you get out on a field and all of a sudden you're playing against a ton of guys who are really really talented how was that adjustment um like i told you like baseball same everywhere baseball you still gotta make three outs you still gotta throw the ball to the plate and everything i mean the only thing was the rules a little bit like back home i couldn't break the double like back home i could break the double play just take out the shortstop over here in the united states in high school you can do that so that was kind of a little bit of adjustment of rules and everything but baseball wise i mean yeah, talented is unreal. I mean, every everywhere I look, everywhere like I play, I was playing against guys like me or even better than me. So I mean, that's what that that was motivation right there to keep getting better. So I mean, it it's it's a blessing being able to do that right now. Mauricio, take us through the draft process. In 2013, you go in the 26th round, um, sign with the Red Sox, and you know, and now you're you're a fully seasoned fourth year pro um, in professional baseball. But for you to, I mean, it's such a quick turnaround from the time you come over, start playing high school ball here, then all of a sudden, you know, a few years later, you're playing at the professional ranks. What was the the toughest thing about getting into professional ball and figuring out, you know, just what the routine was like, and um, you know, kind of the the level of play and what was expected of you as a ball player? What was the the biggest adjustment? for that 
Uh, I mean, it was, it was Andre. I mean, 26 round. I mean, I know the odds are not good and everything, but like I told, like I keep telling you, like sooner there's gonna, baseball's gonna show who you are. I mean, I never doubted my ability. I never, I'm never gonna doubt my ability. I know who I am. I know what type of player I am. But I mean, it's, I think the toughest thing for me was coming from high school that had a lot of success and now coming to Pro Bowl that you fail a lot of times. You, you fail a lot. And having a positive mindset during those tough times of my first year, I mean, that was a really challenge. But good thing I got a great group of people back home, back in Sacramento, I mean, that helped me out a lot, that helped me through the process and everything. And that was a big, that was a big thing right there, just, just dealing with failure my first year and everything. Now it's just, hey, you're not going to get a base hit every day, so. And just to go back to that draft process, I mean, a lot of guys coming out of high school in the 26th round, you know, they're looking at college. Um, you know, they usually aren't signing at that level if they're coming out of high school. Um, you know, how much did your kind of journey play into your decision to sign that you would come here, you know, because of baseball and when you got your chance, you were going to take it? I mean, I kind of knew, like I told you, I, I knew my ability. I knew. Like, I just needed a chance. I just needed a chance to prove people that I can play baseball at any level. I just got my chance and everything. I mean, and so far, so it's been so good. I mean, some, yeah, I mean, 26 round, it's not, I mean, I'm not saying it's not good, but it's not bad either. I mean, I got my chance and everything. So that's all of what I wanted, my chance. Yeah, for sure. And uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about too is, you know, as a guy who has kind of two feet in the, or one foot in each area, both, you know, your experience in the States, your experience in Honduras. You know, I know the organization kind of leaned on you to help Yoan Mankata kind of get used to the state ball last year at Greenville. Um, you know, how do you kind of approach that role as a guy who can, you know, talk to some of the Latin players, um, but also, you know, you have that American spirit experience. You know, what is that kind of role like for you? Oh, I mean, I feel like I'm a bridge between the, American and Latin guys, I mean, it's, that's, that's something I think is a blessing. I mean, be able to help my teammates and everything like that. I mean, and I, I'm very proud about it. I mean, I get to help these guys and I think get to tell them what to do. I mean, and they too, they come to me and ask me, like, what they need to do, what, what, like, just, just, I feel like a bridge. I mean, I can help these guys out and everything. So that's, that's pretty neat. Mauricio, let me ask you this question, uh, because you've been away from home for a little while. Have you in Sacramento or in any of these, the minor league communities that you've been through so far, have you found anywhere with good Honduran food? Because I feel like that would be a tough thing to track down, but probably something that you miss. Have you found any good Honduran places? Actually, I went to Portland. Portland was something even like close. It was Salvadorian food. Okay. It was actually, yeah, it's close. It's close, but not like Honduran food, <laughs> but it's close. What do you miss most about home? I mean, and and how often do you get to go back? Because it's you know people. I go. I, the, yeah. the the off season so short. You know these days. I know I have a shorter one even this year. So <laughs> I go back like December. December I go spend all December a little bit of January there. So. So when you go back this year, what's going to be the first thing on the docket? I mean, seeing family and friends, obviously. But what's the what's the one thing when you first get home that you got to do? <laughs> Funny thing when I first get home. Like, I get home usually around 12 o'clock p.m., like, uh, during the day. So I eat and everything, and then at 2 o'clock, I go to the field and practice. So just right yeah, back no, into stop. it. 
right back into it. I mean, <laughs> I go where where I used to go play and everything, and that's where I practice. So I go with my brother. My brother's the one that helps me out during my offseason and everything. So he's the one that helps me a lot. That is awesome. That is awesome. Mauricio Dubon, who is the 12th ranked prospect in the Boston Red Sox organization and off to a solid start in the Arizona Fall League first week of games. Already wrapped up in the AFL for 2016, which is pretty crazy. But Mauricio, congratulations on a, a breakout 2016 and best of luck the rest of the way in the AFL and uh, enjoy home when you make it back in a couple of months. Thank you. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Mauricio Dubon, really, really cool to get a chance to talk to him. He's on Twitter at Mauricio Dubon10. And uh, that is our conversation for this week from the Arizona Fall League. And joining us in segment number three of episode number 81 of the Show Before the Show podcast to yell into the void with us is one Benjamin Hill. Hi, Ben. Hey, yeah, cue up Sabbath into the void. Let's do it. Let's do it. That'll, we'll just run that as a bed. A bed do we on. have the rights for that? Or we... <laughs> Probably not. Just, just as the lawyer on the podcast. I don't think we have to pay unless we lawyer. sell something. So we just can't mention Ben's T-shirts, which you may or may not be able to purchase at milbstore.com. Um, so, hey, welcome in, Ben. How's uh, how's things? It's good. It's good to be in the void with you. Good. It's good to have but you. If you're with someone in the void, is it the void? Oh, that's true. Ooh, that's a very good question. Is a hot dog a sandwich? No, we're not going to go there. I promise. No, we're not. Um, let's get started. Batting around returns this week. Ballpark news all over the place. Let's start in Richmond, Virginia, where this comes courtesy of the Richmond Times-Dispatch. Quote, Virginia Commonwealth University and the Richmond Flying Squirrels will be major contributors toward the construction of a roughly $55 million baseball stadium near the boulevard, according to an announcement late Monday afternoon. Plans are still in the early stages, according to a news release issued jointly with the city of Richmond. But the university and the team signed a memorandum of understanding at the end of last month outlining how they hope to proceed. This is one of the most drawn-out ballpark situations in all of baseball, not just Major League Baseball, not just Minor League Baseball. This has been going on for this has been going on since before the Richmond Flying Squirrels were even a twinkle in the eye of Todd Parnell. I mean, this is a long, long time that this has been coming for the city of Richmond and for a new ballpark for their double-A team in the Eastern League now. Yeah, so to recap this situation, you know, as you mentioned, um, through the 2008 season, Richmond had a triple-A team, the Richmond Braves, and they played in the Diamond. One of the reasons they left and ended up in Gwinnett, um, Georgia, was because they they didn't want to play in the Diamond uh, long term. It's not that old of a stadium. It was built in 1985, but it's kind of like you'd imagine um, the stereotypical early 70s multi-purpose stadiums like the Vet or Riverfront or what have you uh, transposed to AA uh, size and scope. So it's just not really built for modern-day minor league baseball. It's uh, not in the best condition. So the Richmond Braves left. And then the Richmond Flying Squirrels came in. They had previously been in uh, the Connecticut Defenders. And part of their motivation for coming to Richmond was, um, you know, discussions with the city and uh, an, an assumption. I guess it's, you know, it's never safe to assume, but that they would work with the city and get a ballpark built in a relatively quick period of time. Uh, the Flying Squirrels played their first season in 2010, and now we're heading to 2017. And uh, clearly a, a new stadium is still a long way off. There's been a lot of ups and downs. There was a new downtown stadium, like in downtown Richmond proper, that was uh, proposed at one point in the Shaco Bottom neighborhood, and that got a lot of opposition. Not the least of which was because uh, Shaco Bottom, you know, was formerly a a bustling slave trade market, and then there was a lot of you know uh, discussions about 
how to honor that history and acknowledge that history uh, within building a minor league ballpark. So to say this process is not, has uh, not been easy is an understatement. And it had kind of come to an impasse heading into this season where nothing really seemed to be happening. But uh, all the parties involved have uh, kept hammering it out. So, uh, Tyler, the information you talked about this um, to set this up, you know, that pretty much comes from a city of Richmond press release where the Flying Squirrels, the city, and uh, Virginia Commonwealth University have agreed on a memorandum of understanding which is basically just saying an agreement. We've agreed on an agreement uh, to move forward, but there's a lot of detail in the agreement on what they want to accomplish. Um, I'm sure there'll be a lot of gnashing of teeth and back and forth on the funding mechanisms. Uh, the Flying Squirrels do say in the press release that they will be paying about a million dollars annual rent, and that's uh, more than four times what they're paying at the Diamond right now approximately. So, um, you know, baby steps. But it's been a huge progress, uh, a huge process, and there's a little bit of pro- uh, progress being made right now. So fingers crossed. Yeah, that's the thing I can't quite get past it. When you say it's a memorandum of understanding, and it's just it's it's an agreement to agree, does that mean anything, or is this is this just like something you have to check off on the checklist, or is this actually meeting progress? You know, are they going to say is there another deadline or something they have to meet here? Um, there's nothing binding in a memorandum. I, I'm not an expert on memorandums of understanding, but writing about uh, stadiums and stadium agreements through the years, and every city council is different in their specific approval processes, and it's a, a real hard thing to kind of talk about in a more in a streamlined way. But a memorandum of understanding is is there's nothing binding in it. There's no contracts that you know need to be worked out. It's basically saying we've come this far, we've agreed on this much thus far, and here's what we've agreed on in writing, and from this. You know what we've agreed upon that you can all see that's laid out in concrete detail. Now we will move forward and we will try to make it more official. And you know, more official often means uh, you know the actual specifics of the funding mechanisms and uh, and uh, all those things. And the, you know, it, it can spiral into all sorts of other new issues. But um, so there's going to be a long way to go in making this happen. But um, the fact that they did have this joint announcement with three parties involved um, in what is you know arguably the best one of the best markets for minor league baseball, you know, in all of minor league baseball, but certainly in double A in the Eastern league, even playing in the diamond, the flying squirrels have led the league in attendance or been, you know, first or second every year of their existence. And in a way that's hurt the team's case because they really want a new stadium, but they're still drawing approximately 400,000 fans a year, uh, much more than most teams in the league. Yeah. That's, what's been pretty incredible about the way that Richmond front office has put that team together. They have been, uh, one of the, the most, um, I think you could even say they've turned themselves into kind of a cornerstone franchise of minor league baseball while only existing for, you know, seven years at this stage. But when you think about the teams that are on the cutting edge, the flying squirrels are certainly one of them and they've done it all in one of the ballparks. That's been uh, a question mark for quite some time in baseball, but we'll stay in the Eastern league and we'll move to a different ballpark situation, which became, you know, the ugliest in 2016 and looks like it is set for much brighter days ahead. This comes to us from the Hartford current quote, more than 130 days after work stopped Dunkin Donuts park was abuzz with new construction activity Tuesday as roughly three dozen carpenters, mechanical engineers, and other contractors got down to the business of finishing the beleaguered ballpark. Now that is the once and future home of the Hartford Yard Goats. First it was set to open in April, then it was May, 
then it was June, then it was July, then it was never. Uh, it turned into an ugly dispute between the city of Hartford and the contractors who were building that ballpark, and construction just stopped um, over the summer and really left that team in a tough spot. But now things have changed. The city is set to take over soon. The ballpark, as I understand it, is already about 90% completed, but with the way this whole thing fell apart, I mean, this turned into, into an ugly situation in the summer. But now I think probably cooler heads prevail once the season is over, and now it looks like the yard goats are just set to take off, you know, hit the ground running in 2017. Well, you know, that you, you framed it very optimistically there, and, and I agree that they uh, uh, better times are ahead, but um, this has been such a complex situation, such a mess. Essentially, uh, Center Plan, the development uh, company that is building the stadium through essentially a contract with the city of Hartford, they went way over uh, their budget. Um, there's a lot of dispute with the city over why that those budget overruns were occurring. The city removed, terminated their contract with the developer. That resulted in all sorts of lawsuits and counter lawsuits. Construction stopped because there literally was not the money to continue. The entire 2016 season was lost. And once the contract was terminated with the developer, then the insurance company you know, that is that is their arch insurance to you know, basically oversee the project and ensure its completion, then they have now taken over. And so now with them in charge, they now, have now hired a new company to come in and complete the process. So even though if you drive by the stadium, it looks essentially done, you have an entire new company coming in and finishing work started by another company, and that work stopped in acrimonious circumstances over the summer. So I'm sure there's still going to be a lot of communications issues as the city – uh, center plan, the old company, the new one coming in, the insurance company, uh, work to finish all these things. Um, so I st still think it's going to be a process, and I still think you know nothing's guaranteed as we approach the 2017 season. But most of the work is done. There's a new company coming in now to handle the remainder. And knock on wood, we can all put this behind us, um, you know, within the minor league landscape. And Hartford will just have a team. And um, you know, it, it's been kind of textbook and kind of how not to do it. Um, in terms of you know the way it's gone down so far, but I think the front office staff is going to do a great job. They're not involved in the day to day, and we've talked yeah. about them before. Um, I think the marketing has been very good. I think the attitude surrounding the team within the front office is still very strong. So hopefully, you know how we got to this point. You know it took a lot of things, but going forward, um, hopefully Hartford can uh, open on time this year because the only way they're going to open at all is if they open on time, and uh, from there. You know, really, uh, you know, make up for lost time, and uh, you know, do such a good job that, that they can turn this thing around, and you know, hopefully, in three, five, ten years, people will be looking at that this in a different way, and hopefully, all this turmoil will be an afterthought. But you know, time will tell. And how much of this kind of plays into the dangers, I guess, of publicly financed stadiums? Because a lot of this is coming from the city of Hartford itself. They were the ones who terminated the contracts because they're if you're going over budget, you're going over budget with taxpayer dollars. Um, you know, so what kind of lessons can we kind of take from this, I guess, going forward for other clubs building new stadiums? Well, I think from this one specifically, um, the, the deal to, um, get to make the stadium a reality was by a mayor who was voted out of office fairly shortly after the deal took place. Um, it was, it was not done with much public input, um, and then you have a new mayoral administration taking over and trying to, you know, figure out what's what. Um, I think as it speaks to as much as these the pro these processes can seem, you know, glacial. <laughs> Uh, it's for a reason because so many different entities have to be on the same page. And when you're talking about uh, public money, then you're talking about 
you and I and everyone else, uh, you know, contributing in some way if you are a taxpayer in that region. Um, so whew, I don't even know uh, how best to summarize it, but um, to be as open and transparent as possible and let the process play out no matter how long it takes um, because uh, this one is, has gotten ugly. There is a, uh, a lesson to be learned for a lot of future teams. There was uh, actually a note when the two teams were announced to be moving from the California League to the Carolina League. There was a note in the Kinston Free Press. Of course, Granger Stadium in Kinston will host a new club, the Texas Rangers affiliate. There will be a Houston Astros affiliate. It's believed in Fayetteville, North Carolina. At some point, there was a note in the Kinston Free Press when that move was announced that taking cues from the Yard Goats, from the El Paso Chihuahuas, from uh, the scranton Wilkesbury Rail Riders, there's a chance that that Fayetteville team will play its games in Kinston until a ballpark is fully completed. So obviously other teams, other front offices have kept tabs on stuff like this. But as of right now, the target date for the Hartford Yard Goats to host their first home opener at Dunkin' Donuts Park is April 13th, 2017. And that sends us to the New York Penn League and an interesting situation that has developed with the Auburn Double Days, who are a city-owned team now up for sale. Um, the ownership arrangement with the Double Days is really interesting in itself and it looks like it'll be getting more so. But these teams, I mean, these are tough assets to sell in small markets, um, you know, not a, a mass revenue generator. Walk us through what's going on in Auburn. Well, Auburn, one of the smallest markets in the New York Penn League, and um, they are a city owned team. There are community owned teams throughout minor league baseball, usually in smaller markets, but a city owned team is very rare. And this happened in the early 80s. And I'm not sure exactly what led to what to where the city ended up buying the team itself. And, uh, you know, the city has gotten to the point where they're saying, you know, this is not something that should be one of our assets and this should not be one of our businesses to run. And it's a, a unique situation being owned by the city, but then being the day to day management is run by a, a nonprofit group. Um, so it's, it's, it's unique and, uh, fairly complicated, but they have announced the city's announced that they want to sell the team. And I think that immediately would get anyone who's been paying attention to minor league baseball and especially the New York Penn league to think, well, if the city of Auburn is selling this team more likely than not, whoever has the, you know, let's say $6 million to buy a New York Penn league franchise probably isn't going to be investing that $6 million to keep the team in Auburn, New York, which no disrespect at all to Auburn, New York. I, I visited there a few years ago. The, the stadium is um, you know, not that old, but it's a very you know, no-frills, classic environment, beautiful environment, um, you know, kind of baseball you know, as it used to be, as people say. And uh, I hate to see those kind of markets leave, but when you're Auburn, New York – and you're in a league that it now has the West Virginia Black Bears and uh, the Mahoning Valley Scrappers and uh, the Lowell Spinners and Brooklyn Cyclones and uh, Aberdeen Ironbirds. You're talking about just a different operating model for most of this league. And you'd think that the days of a team like the Auburn Double Days or the Batavia Muck Dogs, who have been on the market for years, um, their days just seem to be numbered with the direction that the rest of the league and the rest of the industry is going. He is Benjamin Hill with all the uh, the latest news from around minor league baseball. That'll be coming up in this week's batting around column. You can get some more details on all of those situations and more, as well as more stuff going up to the blog. Um, what, what else? You got? you got anything Halloween coming up? What uh, What's your trick-or-treating situation? Uh, I got no real Halloween plans. On Friday, I'm going to go to Coney Island. because uh, Cool. They, uh, the same uh, organization that runs the freak show down there. Um, does an annual Halloween show, and it's always uh, kind of ramshackle and raucous, but it's a it's a good Halloween tradition. What do you think the freaks do for Halloween? Because it's just like a normal day then. Yeah, I mean, if you're a freak, every day is Halloween. 
and that's <laughs> and that's the way to live. Halloween as long as it comes with the candy. That sounds good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Halloween is a truly subversive holiday. I mean, here we you know we're based in the Chelsea Market here in New York City, which is a big tourist destination. And we, you know, you walk in to get to our elevators, and there's like severed heads yeah. hanging from the wall. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's going to take the elevator, and there you have to be greeted in the face with a severed head on a hook, and on I, a meat hook. And I kind of love it. There's just like kids and foreign tourists strolling by, and I'm like, "Hey, welcome <laughs> to the Chelsea Market, where we have impaled body parts dangling from the ceiling." Oh, Halloween so allows us to be yeah. that weird and gross. And I, I like it because we're all weird and gross. We just hide it better most of the time. That well, is true. First time that severed head comes up in my neighborhood. So, so. <laughs> it really is the weirdest day of the year. When you think about just like grown adults are okay with hanging fake bodies out of their windows and stuff. Uh, it's a very, we live in a very strange society. Uh, Benjamin Hills on Twitter. You can find him at Ben's Biz and you can check out the blog, bensbiz.mlblogs.com, as well as all of the stuff headed to the site. Ben, thanks, dude. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you. And please read the blog. I'm still writing about my ballpark. Read visit. The blog! Someone needs to read it. Please, <laughs> someone. Just tell me you're reading it. I'm trying really hard. It'll be done within a week or two. Do it. Read them. Thanks, Ben. Final segment of episode number 81 of the Show Before the Show podcast. You can find us on iTunes, on Stitcher, on uh, the old mobile devices, wherever you find podcasts. MILB.com slash podcast. Also your home for everything of the Minor League Baseball podcast. In case you missed an episode and you want to find it there, go find it there. Uh, do whatever do whatever your heart's content says. You can also uh, give us a rating and a review and a subscription on all those other services. And we're going to get out of here for this week's edition. Uh, a couple of programming notes. Coming up uh, next week will be business as usual. Uh, I'll be at the Arizona Fall League for a few days. I'm going to head down there on Saturday. I'm going to check out games Monday and Tuesday. So we'll have an episode recorded for you next week. We'll talk some more AFL. We'll talk some more offseason stuff. The following week, I believe we will be uh, taking a week away from the podcast. Sam is going to be gone. I will be gone as well. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, you might have to you might have to make do without us, people. <laughs> If somehow I don't know how you're gonna do it, yeah, you can check on us. We'll both still be alive. Yeah, I, I know that's how normally you people Hopefully. check in on us and just make sure we're fine. Is that we are podcasting during the week? We'll make sure out. you were fine. We're just uh, we're taking a small break and then we'll be back with the ch- recharge batteries and uh, like it, nothing ever happened. Exactly. It'll be perfect. So we'll be uh, we'll be back again next week. Business as usual. The week after, gonna miss you. Uh, but the week after that, first week in November, first week in November, second week in November. I don't know if the democracy is still standing. Yeah. We will be back for yet another episode as we uh, get you set. That'll be like close to uh, the end of the Arizona Fall League, which will be nuts. We'll be wrapping up uh, conversation about the Rising Stars game and all that kind of stuff. But that's weeks down the road. So we'll we'll talk to you next week from uh, from Arizona and points beyond and uh, and. Until then, enjoy the postseason, and uh, yeah, we'll talk to you next week. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best 
stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. 